Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Traditional liberal societies have been defined by humanist universalism, making no distinctions between their citizens on the basis of creed or ethnicity. But in recent decades, a new and influential movement of thinkers has taken a different view. We cannot fix an unequal society, they argue, by acting as if those inequalities don't exist. These thinkers have become hugely influential, first in academia and now in mainstream popular culture, reshaping politics across the democratic world. Yasha Monk, a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University and a prominent commentator on contemporary American society, thinks this is a mistake. His latest book, The Identity Trap, argues that this new ideology is dangerously misguided and that a return to the philosophical principles of traditional liberalism is the best, perhaps the only, way forward. Yasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Faisal. So in your book, you call this movement the identity synthesis, and it's kind of synthesized from the identity politics of the past and the wokeism of the present. And so I think we should start before we even we get into the ideas of it. I think we should start with the title and why you decided to coin that phrase. Yeah, you know, there's many contested political ideologies, which some people love and some people dislike or hate on which both of those sets of people can nevertheless agree on the same name. So socialism, some people think of themselves as socialists, some people think socialism is a very bad idea, but both of those sets of people are going to refer to the ideology as socialism. Mm. What's happened over the last decades is, first of all, that I think a genuinely new political tradition, a genuinely new political ideology has started to coalesce in universities around the world and then come to have significant influence on our culture and politics. And however you feel about that ideology, I I trace its roots in my book in in a serious way. I think there's smart and interesting ideas within it, even though I ultimately believe it to be a trap, believe it to lead us in the wrong direction. It would be helpful to have a term that we can use to actually refer to it that doesn't immediately make you out to be either a supporter or somebody who sort of is foaming at the mouth, uh, shouting at it. Mm-hmm. We don't quite have that. I, identity politics is far too broad. You know, woke originated actually as a self-description of members of the movement, but has now become uh, purely uh, a pejorative term with people who sort of sneer at the tradition like to use. And so for purposes of his book and a little bit, hopefully for purposes of a broader social discussion we can have, I wanted to coin a phrase that would refer to it in, in, in a relatively neutral, dispassionate way. So why the identity synthesis? Well, because the set of ideas really centers around the importance of race, gender, and sexual orientation in both our society and how our society should be structured. And the synthesis, because as I show in the book, it really is a synthesis of uh, postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. If you allow me just one short word, I'm sure we'll get into that. Mm. Um, I don't know that I would disagree with ideas that, uh, as you described them in the introduction, which say that, of course, we must be deeply aware of a way in which identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation structure disadvantage and discrimination in society today. I certainly don't advocate that we be race blind in the kind of meaning of pretending that those kinds of injustices don't exist. I think the question at the heart of my book is whether we want to create a society in which those identities come to be less important than they used to be, in part because we manage to remedy those inequalities and injustices, or whether we should resign ourselves to a society in which, from 
what we teach six-year-old children to how we think about the promise of mutual cultural influence and in our cultural institutions to explicit public policy and how the state treats all of us, we should always make how we treat each other and how the state treats us depend on the kind of groups into which we're born. That is where I disagree with this tradition. And that's what I think is truly novel about this tradition. But it goes beyond the recognition of these injustices to really wanting to enshrine those forms of differential treatment and those forms of encouraging people to lean into their identities as much as possible at the heart of our uh, politics and culture. And I think that is one of the things that makes the book um, different to some of the popular discourse, that you don't that you do rather accept that there are these uh, differences in the way people are treated. There are inherent differences in people and gender and sexuality and so on. But you say there must be a better way for us to deal with those inequalities. But before we get to that, because that is kind of what the book is about, I want to talk a little bit about wokeism and why you think what is now called wokeism, as you say, derogatory. Why has that gone too far? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I assume you both studied in England, and one thing you learn in England is that to get a good grade at university, you always have to quibble with the way the question is phrased. I, I usually try not to do that, but I'm, I'm sorry to do it. No, go ahead. I, yeah, good. I, I don't think the problem, I, I try to avoid saying that this movement has gone too far because, you know, oh, you know, these young radical people who are anti racist and, and they just go too far in their anti racism. I mean, the natural response to that is, how can you go too far in wanting to fight against those kinds of injustices? How can you mm -hmm. go too far in fighting against racism? I certainly am committed to doing everything I can to root out racism and other forms of discrimination in our society myself. I think the problem is not that they go too far. I think the problem really is that they uh, take us in the wrong direction. So, you know, let me, this is not exclusively a book about American ideas, but to locate this for a moment in the history of American ideas. There's a proud uh, tradition of identity politics, if you will, uh, of activists fighting for the rights of African Americans, which have, of course, been ignored in, in, in the most extreme and violent ways for much of American history. And those activists like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr., or if you want, in a kind of modern incarnation, under less extreme circumstances, Barack Obama, have been very willing to call out the hypocrisy of their compatriots, of the people, of the contemporaries, saying that America is structured by the Bill of Rights, by the Declaration of Independence, by those lofty ideals, when in fact there was still slavery or there was still Jim Crow, there were still other forms of less extreme discrimination by the early part of the 21st century. But what all of them also did was to insist that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Frederick Douglass, in holding his famous speech, what in the language that was usual at the time, what to the Negro is the 4th of July, said, you know, you're being hypocritical, but I want to be included under the protection of the Constitution. I too think the Constitution is a great document. By what right are you excluding us from that Constitution? He didn't reject free speech as some members of the progressive left do today. He recognized that it was a key tool in the fight for justice, calling it the dread of tyrants. And you could say similar things about Martin Luther King and other people in that tradition. What is at the heart of the theorists that I'm talking about is the rejection of that tradition. Derek Bell, widely acknowledged as really the key thinker and originator of what's now known as critical race theory, said that we have to 
moved beyond what he called the quote-unquote defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Kimberly Crenshaw, after Barack Obama was elected, said that his political views are fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. So, okay. so that's, just, I think, the contrast we need to understand. Just there, I think, is a way to explain to the audience precisely what you mean. So let's talk about this, the, the way that Obama's views apparently are in contradiction with critical race theory. Where are the things that Obama's, what you might call universalist position on American society, where are the parts where that disagrees with critical race theory? There's a number of them. So, you know, Derek Bell, and again, I really hope I treat the figures that I talk about in this book with respect. And, you know, I'm trained as an intellectual historian. I, in the first instance, in the first part of the book, simply want to understand where the ideas come from in a non-evaluative way. Later, I offer a philosophical critique of their views. But Derek Bell is in many ways an understandable figure. He is an African-American, the first black student in his law class at the University of Michigan, I believe. I may be getting this wrong. He goes on to work for the NAACP, doing heroic work, helping desegregate public schools in the American South in the 1960s. But he comes to think of that as a mistake in key respects. He observes, for example, and this is, again, perfectly understandable, that many of his clients uh, on whose behalf he speaks don't profit from desegregation because by the time that schools are integrated, they've already graduated. Yeah. Uh, but he goes far beyond that and starts to say, you know, perhaps these segregationist senators were right when they claimed that these civil rights movements, civil rights lawyers, weren't really arguing on behalf of their clients. They were serving two masters. They were really more interested in imposing their ideology on America. And so perhaps we should have uh, gone for schools that are separate but truly equal. We should have fought for better resources for black schools rather than trying to integrate them so strongly. So he really rejects, in key ways, Brown versus Board of Education, one of the most important Supreme Court rulings in the United States in the 20th century. Another point that he makes is about what he calls the permanence of racism, that the only time that there's an appearance of progress for black Americans, it's because it's in the interests of whites. And that for the nature of Racism might change from one moment to another, and so it might be a little bit more visible in some times and less visible in others. Really, there has been no progress on this count, you know, by, say, the year 2000. So America was as racist in 2000 as it was in 1950 or 1850. And I assume he would say he passed away about 15 years ago. I would, I would assume he would say the same today. Mm-hmm. So Barack Obama has a different view on both of those counts, right? He is aware of racism and injustice that persisted in America when he was running for president and that still persists in America today. But he, I think, wants solutions that that help to see us what we have in common as well as what divides us and that help to overcome those injustices in a more inclusive way. And he certainly believes that there has been moral progress in the United States, that much remains imperfect, but that the country is better than it was. And by the way, this is not just about race, which we've been talking about a lot, but the same kind of forms of arguments play out in different areas. Many gay rights organizations today claim that there have been no real progress on gay rights over the last 30 or 40 years. That is absurd when you actually remember how gay people were treated in Britain and the United States and many other countries as recently as the 1990s. So I think your criticism of that worldview is rooted in the idea that if society continues to be defined by these divisions, 
that it almost ceases to become a society. We're just constantly trapped into these identities. Well, again, uh, let's be precise here. I have no problem at all with the fact that people in diverse democracies will always take some amount of pride in their origins and some of the things that set them apart from their fellow citizens. You know, that's certainly true for religion. It is true for national and cultural origin. In certain contexts, especially in a country like the United States, it, it will probably forever be true about some conception of ethnicity as well. And as a good liberal, I believe in freedom of association. So if people want to spend most of their life surrounding themselves with people who have the same religious beliefs or with people who have roots in the same part of a world that is outside of a country they currently live in, or for that matter, with people who have the same race, I think that's something that we need to accept, part of which is positive, part of which can be less positive. It depends a little bit on the context, but I'm not too concerned about that. What I'm talking about is a new set of ideas which actually thinks it is the task of our most important social institutions to encourage people to double down on those identities as strongly as possible. But, the, in, in, but, but let, let me, yeah. um, just to give some examples of this, uh, you know, one of the most influential consultancies for schools in the United States now is called Embrace Race. And it explains that the goal of a decent education is to get students to see themselves as racial beings. And so uh, a lot of the elite private schools in the United States now have teachers coming into classrooms in the first and second and third grade and splitting students up by race. So these are not students who are 16 or 17 who can make their own decisions about who they want to hang out with. These are teachers coming into classrooms full of six and seven-year-olds and saying, if you're black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. If you're white, you go over there. By the way, I don't exactly know what we do with people of Middle Eastern origin in the United States, since according to the census, they're white. So it's a little bit white, of a yeah, strange exactly. thing there, right? But that, I mean, that in I itself think, shows a, a problem with it, that there aren't these clear delineating lines. No, absolutely. But, it, but let's, was, let's keep was, going. I was speaking yeah, to a friend whose, whose mother is Latino and whose father is African-American. He said, on the first day of college, I was told, we're going to do this exercise. It was imposed in a way where I guess it wasn't technically obligatory, but everybody felt obliged to take part. And it's like, so, so now I have to choose between the identities of my parents. Do I go to right. a Latino corner or a black corner? So it's meant yeah. to affirm those identities, but it both you know, imposes a hegemonic identity on them and makes many people feel really uncomfortable because they don't have those straightforward, obvious identities, right? Yes. Now, one problem with this example about elementary schools is that mm. I, 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 I think that does inspire forms of zero-sum ethnic conflict that are problematic in general. But it's particularly worrisome for the white group. And I'm not worried, as some conservatives are, that the poor kids are going to be uncomfortable. I think it's fine to be uncomfortable in your education sometimes. I worry about what it will do to how they understand themselves and how they act politically. Because if there's one thing I've learned from history and social psychology, it's that uh, if you tell people the most important thing about you is this membership in this group, then you're going to fight for the interests of that group and against the interests of other groups. So even mm -hmm. for the goal of Bank, school, Bank Street School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, incredibly influential school because it teaches, it trains teachers close to Columbia University. You know, when it says, no, we want our white students to embrace the whiteness and their European origins and to define themselves as such, they're trying to create anti-racist activists, I think they're more likely to create white supremacists.
But aren't they aren't they doing it because the importance of doubling down on racial identity, even at an early age, this would be their theory, is that is something that the world imposes on you anyway, let's say the American world. So if you tell students, pupils from a young age, that your racial identity matters, all you are doing is telling them a fact that they will experience once they go out into the society. Um, well, again, I think that there is then two options here, right? If you choose between the option of saying, there's no such thing as race, it doesn't exist, let's ignore it completely, there's never been racial injustice in the United States on the one side, and the most important thing about you is your race, and our pedagogical goal is to get you to think of yourself as a racial being and to embrace that as a Mosanian fact about you, then I guess perhaps I choose that latter thing. I think that there's a very straightforward middle path. Hmm. Which but, but, is, yeah, but Yasha, aren't you overstating it? It's not as if they, it's not as if they structure the entirety of the school in that way. They merely say, as for example, when you go to a chemistry class, chemistry is really important. So let's talk about chemistry in this class, and then in the next class you talk about physics, and in the next class you talk about literature. And they're doing the same thing. They're saying this is part of how you will be perceived in the outside world. Let's talk about it so that you understand it. They're not saying but, we're only going to teach you biology in this context. Well, but, 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 but first of all, they are imposing this particular identity on you in a way that may not at that time be true to your self-perception, and they're, choosing you, they're forcing you to choose between those different elements of your identity in the ways we've discussed. You know, again, leaving my friend to choose between his two identities and probably leaving, you know, a lot of people of Middle Eastern origin to have really uncomfortable choices to make in, yeah. in, in the United States for that reason. And that's an element of this that you can't escape. And I do think that it goes beyond that. I think there's ways in which you can bring in the topic of race and, and talk about it and discuss it as you absolutely should without saying, hey, we are telling you in an authoritative way you have to go and self, you know, and think of this group as your peers. We've decided these are the eight people in your class who share the same identity group, and off you go into a separate group to talk about those issues. I think that is both a mistake in itself and symptomatic of a much broader way are thinking about those issues. You know, the other thing that it does is to just think about those identity groups as a form of disadvantage and injustice, which it may partially be in society, but I don't actually think it gives people a healthy self-understanding. This is something that Ibu Patel has said to me. He's an interfaith organizer in the United States, a Muslim of Indian origin. He was born in the United States. And so he has two teenage sons, and he says he gets really angry because his teachers often encourage his sons to share about the experience of being Muslim in the United States, but it's always in the context of, tell us why it's hard. Tell us mm. the terrible things that have happened to you. And yeah. he says, that's great. It's good that his sons should have an opportunity to share some of the challenges they faced, but he wishes that they had an opportunity to talk about what's important to them in the Islamic faith, about what the religion believes, about what their worldview is, but they're never invited to share about that. So it's not just about identity being brought in or people being able to bring in the whole selves to the classroom. It's about the really simplifying and essentializing way in which that is often done. One you've, thing on you've this... Phrased, well, just let's stick with Patel for a second, because you've talked about that example of him sharing the good things about his Muslim experience in a positive way. 
But wouldn't that writ large across the society actually continue to draw these distinctions between groups that you don't like, whether it's positive or negative? Well, but again, I'm not saying we have to dissolve identity groups. That is not something that I ever say in the book. So, 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 yes, of course, that is one thing that would allow his kids' classmates to see and understand what is important to them about their faith. I have no problem with that at all. But the question is: It done in a way where we encourage to relate to each other. We're told that we can actually understand each other or not. Let me say a couple of things. One is that, you know, I trace where this idea of what I'm calling progressive separatism comes from. And it has origins in the thought of Gayatri Spivak, who's an interesting post-colonial thinker, who makes her name by interpreting and translating post-modernism, post-structuralist thinkers like Derrida, and who therefore shares their skepticism about what she calls essential categories of Identity. She says, philosophically speaking, they're not really true. But she then goes on to say, you know what, for practical political purposes, we do need to be able to speak for what she calls the subaltern, the most oppressed people in what at the time would have been called the third world. And so therefore, for strategic purposes, we should talk about, about identity and to encourage people to lean into their identities. That becomes the foundation for how we often talk about those things today. You know, oh, race, of course, is a social construct. It doesn't really have any biological basis, which I agree with. But you know what? We're now going to talk as though it did in all kinds of ways. Spivak mm -hmm. herself came to be very critical of the consequences that this had. She basically encouraged people to stop using her term because she thought in her language it became the union ticket for essentialism that it allowed people to pay this lip service to the fact that identity is actually much more complicated, but then to act in ways that actually can perpetuate oppression in all kinds of ways. And she was worried in, in part about the rise of Narendra Modi in India and the way that he's used identity. The mm. other thing I want to talk about is that, you know, I, I also talk about things like profound disagreements in progressive spaces today about whether we can understand each other across the lines of identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I don't want to filibuster here, but I think perhaps those help to bring out some of my stance and, and how it differs from the ideology I criticize as well. Okay, well, why don't we talk about it in a moment? Because if you want to use it as a way to bring out some of your underlying ideas, but I want to just keep going with the experience of Black Americans for a moment, because I'm interested in the way that sometimes these ideas can become philosophical when out there in the real world, there is a hard political edge to them. So as an example, you're very critical of the idea that we should define people in terms of these essentialist categories. And you say, well, why don't we define them in terms of their individual tastes and temperaments and those sorts of things? And I like this idea of saying, well, actually, there are lots of people who will not see themselves inherently as Latino or inherently as Black, they'll say, the most important thing about me is that I'm an artist. Okay, you can accept that part, right? So you broke up for a second. Can you just repeat that? You can accept the idea that some people will believe that the most important thing about them is not this essential category like being Black or Latino or whatever, but it is something else about, for example, their tastes and temperaments and it could be their artistic interests. So they might say, I am first and foremost an artist. That's what I am rather than anything else. 
Yes, I, th I think in a liberal society you can have different forms of self-description. One of them is going to be an individualistic one like that. Another one is going to be that the most important thing about you is, you know, the country in which you have roots or in certain political contexts, you know, the ethnic group with which you have some form of solidarity because it's experienced injustice. Yeah, but the reason why Black Americans are facing these issues is not because they are identifying as artists or as physicists or whatever. It's because they are Black Americans. So you point out that Black Americans earn less, they own less, they are more likely to attend underfunded schools, more, more likely to live in a, a disadvantaged neighborhood. They're not attending underfunded schools because they're artists or physicists. They're attending those underfunded schools because of their that category. Yes, and That's that makes natural. Yes, and that naturally calls for certain forms of what you might call identity politics. One form of identity politics, like the ones that the civil rights movement engaged in, like the one that the abolitionists engaged in. And as I've said very clearly in the book and from the beginning of the conversation, I have no problem at all about that. Um, the problem becomes when we start to have a conception of politics uh, and a conception of interpersonal communication which reduces people to those categories, right? So, for example, there's now a denial in many progressive spaces that we can understand each other across the lines of those kinds of identities, which issues in a particular kind of conception of what political solidarity should look like. So, roughly speaking, it says, you know, if you are a member of a particular group, you have certain experiences that all of you will share. That will give you a particular insight into oppression in the world. And therefore, because you can't communicate those to people who are not members of a group, you should delegate your political judgment, especially if you belong to a more dominant or more privileged group, to yeah. those who are more marginalized. And so people like Ayanna Presley, a Democratic Congresswoman, ends up saying, you know, I don't want any black politicians who are not a black voice. I don't want any brown politicians who are not a brown voice. I don't want any queer politicians who are not a queer voice. I think that, that I think that, that, that if I may respond, that builds on an assumption or on a, 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 an insight which is intuitive, which is that obviously some of the experiences of injustice that, that you will face in, in, in life do depend on the group you're from. Right? I'm a guy, so I'm less likely to experience or to have to fear forms of sexual harassment on the subway. I'm white, so uh, I'm less likely to experience to be stopped and searched in the streets of New York and therefore uh, may not... Uh, experience the, the kind of sinking feeling of seeing a cop in the street and wondering whether they're uh, going to harm me. Um, you would accept, but, just briefly as an aside, you would accept that in some cases you might have to defer your judgment to a group that is more affected, for example, by police violence. Well, well, let me finish the point I'm making and then, then you'll see what my position on this is. So, so because I haven't had those direct experiences, I of course should be self-aware about the fact that there's certain facts about society, which I don't naturally know in the way that somebody who's black might naturally know. But uh, I think that I'm perfectly capable of understanding those facts if I enter into conversation with my fellow citizens, right? If I keep an open mind, if I don't dismiss things because they don't ring true to me because I haven't had that same experience, I say, oh, if you're saying you've experienced that injustice, tell me about that. Tell me what that felt and looked like. You know, let, let's think about this together. But I think... Ultimately, the right model for political solidarity is not to say, well, I'm sorry, you know, you're of a different race, so I'm never going to understand how you see the world or what happens to you, and I really don't know whether what you're saying is true, but since I recognize that you're more oppressed, I'm going to just defer to you and we'll do whatever you want. That, mm. I think, is a really disastrous model 
of what political solidarity would look like. Instead, I should say, yes, you've told me about police violence. And by the way, we have statistics about it. And it certainly is a real problem. And therefore, it offends my own values. It offends my own vision of what kind of society I want to live in. And so I'm not fighting to overcome police violence because I defer and outsource my judgment to you. I do so because by listening to you, I have come to a shared understanding of the world. Even though I might not fully know what it feels like in that second to face that cop, but I understand the politically relevant parts of it sufficiently but for me to have my own it? commitment to but have my you? own commitment to overcome this. Because you, you're, aren't you still, one second, aren't you still arrogating to yourself the ability to decide that person's lived experience? You gave the example just now of how, as a man, you are not as concerned about daily sexual violence as women are. I think that's right, and I have the exact same experience as a man. Now, if we were to sit down with a woman, one woman, one time, and talk about her experiences, we are not going to come to a coherent understanding of what it is like to face that violence year after year. So why arrogate to ourselves the ability to say, we've had this conversation, now I get to decide? Well, let's think carefully about what the alternative here actually is. Because the alternative is that I'm saying, like, I'm going to delegate my view, right? Who am I delegating that view too exactly? Who is going to speak for all women? Who's going to speak for all black people in an authoritative kind of way? When it comes to the issue of police violence in the United States, uh, a lot of the spokespeople within progressive organizations um, and a lot of the way that the media have framed this issue would lead you to the conclusion that African-Americans want to abolish the police, yeah. that African-Americans, because of those experiences of police violence, are so opposed to the police that they think the solution is uh, uh, simply to, to completely uh, uh, you know, do without those forms of protection. In fact, when you look at opinion polls, what is very different, that of course a majority of African-Americans is deeply concerned about the lack of police accountability and experiences of police violence, but that they want more rather than fewer policemen in right. their neighborhood. And right, so I think there's right. a very serious set of practical problems where if you have a kind of politics that asks you to just delegate to a particular kind of group, there's going to be a question about who speaks for that group. Ayanna right. Presley says she is the only black politician or politicians like her of her kinds of views are the only black politicians who are truly a black voice. Well, somebody like Jim Clyburn has very different politics from Ayanna Presley. He would say, I too am a genuinely black voice. And some conservatives who would say that they in certain ways speaks for part of a uh, African-American population as well. So, so who are you going to outsource your judgment to? In reality, all that this sort of great show of virtue does is to select the person with whom you already agree and then say, that's the person who truly speaks for a group. And I just want to quote on this point, as I do in the book, Bayard Rustin, a great gay black civil rights activist who wrote, the notion of the undifferentiated black community is the intellectual creation of both whites and of certain small groups of blacks who illegitimately claim to speak for the majority. Um, uh, you know, this seems like an abstract point, but I think it's a very real one when you look into how those kind of things actually play out in, in, in society. Hmm. Let's talk about um, free speech, because this is something you raise in the book about your uh, ob objections to the, the political project of uh, deplatforming. I want to start with a discussion about it and then see what there are objections to it. 
Why do you think that deplatforming is such a concern when it predominantly seems to happen in universities? Again, I think it's helpful to define our terms a little bit more carefully here. You know, I run a magazine called Persuasion. If you're interested, you should check it out, persuasion.community. And I suppose I deplatform people in a certain kind of way. I have an editorial line and I decide about you know, who I think would make a valuable contribution to the magazine. And that's mostly an intellectual standard, but it's a political standard, right? We have certain values within the magazine and somebody who argues, you know, from a completely different perspective, you know, would not be a good fit. Uh, and there's no problem with that. What you're seeing at uh, uh, many universities now and in opinion polls of students in the United States and in Britain is that many students think it is appropriate to use violence to disrupt the speech of somebody who's been invited uh, to talk at their institution. So here I'm not saying I'm in charge of some form of programming and I'm making my own choices about who should be invited and perhaps I quote-unquote deplatform somebody on the basis of a political views. Here you have a classic problem of the uh, you know, hackless veto of a person who's willing to use violence in this case to stop other people's right to decide who they want to hear from. And that, I think, is, you know, indicative of a wider problem of how we think about free speech. You know, one of the strangest elements of a discussion about free speech at the moment is that we often think about it in contexts like universities, where we're assuming that the would-be censor somehow has, you know, particularly progressive views. But nearly by definition, the kinds of people who usually get to make decisions about what is censored and what isn't censored in uh, institutional context where we allow censorship are going to be the powerful, right? Who is going to be in the uh, census bureau in the, federal, in, in the government bureaucracy? Who's going to be sitting on the speech facilitation committee of some tech company? It's not the most marginalized in society. It's not the weakest in society. It's people who virtually by definition hold quite a lot of power. And again, that's something that the tradition of the left has historically recognized. This is the reason why Frederick Douglass, while well aware of the nasty things that many of his contemporaries said in newspapers and other publications every day, called free speech the dread of tyrants, because it is the reserve power, the reserve right that the most despised, the most marginalized in society have to criticize their treatment. But isn't the students protesting, aren't they also exercising their freedom of speech? Well, when they are protesting peacefully, of course they are. What I the majority of them, yeah, majority of the time no, they are. Though. Okay, but, but again, when you look at these uh, polls, that a lot of students at these institutions now, I think something like 50% of at many Ivy League universities think it is appropriate to use violence to disrupt the speech, which expresses views that they uh, find to be uh, offensive. You know, I've always thought that what a university president should do when a truly offensive speaker comes to campus is to make it very clear that anybody who uses violence uh, to stop this from happening or who disrupts the speech in more than a, a brief way, which can be an appropriate way to, to protest, but in a way that really stops it from going ahead, is going to face serious disciplinary circumstances, uh, consequences, and at the same time, go and join any peaceful protest that students might be organizing that disagrees with the content of their views. That is, of course, something that universities must invite. But let's not pretend that we don't understand the distinction between counter speech, which is peaceful and allows the event to go ahead, and forms of either outright violence or the heckler's veto, which abrogate to a small number of people the right to decide for everybody else whom they can and can't hear from. 
Right, but there is a political context to the people who have come to speak. It is not merely that, it's not merely that, as you say, the heckler's veto means that a small minority get to disrupt the speech. It's also the case that a small minority decide who can speak. A small minority decides who is this person coming to speak at the university. Isn't that because they already have a book? That in itself is problematic because it's been published by a certain publishing company. It's being featured in certain newspapers. That's why people know about it. There is a political triangle which leads to that particular speaker coming. So the way that people can protest about the choice is by saying, I don't accept this person coming. I want a different person to come. Where's the problem with that? Well, Faisal, at every university I know of, you can found a student group very easily. will get resources for that student group from the university And you're at liberty to invite whomever well you wish, uh, as should be the case. That is part of a freedom of association, which is uh, present in liberal societies in general, and which is particularly important at universities. So if you want to uh, invite a speaker who's counter-hegemonic, who strongly disagrees with those views, uh, you should absolutely be free to do so. And if that speaker is going to offend the sensibilities of others on campus, they shouldn't have the right to disrupt and stop your event from going ahead any more than you should have a right to disrupt the rights of other speakers. And again, you know, look, I grew up in in Germany. I'm well aware of the history of, you know, far-right protesters disrupting the screening, for example, of a movie about nothing new on the Western Front that was meant to premiere in Germany in the 1920s, of the way in which we used forms of those kind of intimidation to make certain viewpoints impossible to discuss and and express right. in those circumstances. Yeah. You know, uh, of course you can always say, well, but these speakers are on the right side, I think, so let's let them go ahead. But you have mm-hmm. to think a little bit around the corner on what that does to a society when you allow people to use those kinds of tactics to determine what can be said and what can't be said. But this, you know, I think very naive assumption that somehow in a systematic way that's going to help the cause of the good and the just, I think that is deeply and thoroughly naive. And by the way, in the United States, we now see uh, a lot of people using power on the right, Republican governors and others, to try and close down what can be said in their universities. I teach a course on some of the subjects that I cover in my new book in which my goal is to give students a chance to rediscuss and debate these and to hear from different points of view. And so, of course, I also assign readings by people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, as well as some readings that criticize them. I wouldn't be able to teach uh, that class according to pending legislation in public colleges in Florida because it's a form of identity politics or critical race theory, which is outward there. I think that is obviously an outrage But the answer to that is not an arms race of different forms of censorship, which I think the right has every bit as much of a chance of winning as the left. It is to have a principled stance to defend freedom of speech and academic freedom. We're coming towards the end of the podcast. I mean, you can see that there's there's large sections of the book we haven't got to yet. But I want to ask a broader question about your work, because you seem very concerned with this question of how we can best live together in spite of our differences. That was the question that underpinned the last book you wrote, The Great Experiment, which we also featured on the podcast. And in some ways, it's the question that underpins this one. And I was wondering, on a personal level, why do you find that central question so compelling? 
Well, you know, you know, again, I, to be very clear, I don't think I'm about to be hypocritical because I think that people bringing in their experiences and how they understand the world is a perfectly normal part of politics, despite uh, some of the ways you've characterized my work in this conversation. <laughs> but, you know, I come from a family that's been in the wrong place at the wrong time for many generations. A family, you know, I have great grandparents who perished in the Holocaust, grandparents who, and parents who, who were displaced and expelled from their countries because of the group of which they are part, you know, I'm essential, aware of. Yeah, this essential group that they were part of. And that was the specific thing that people thought was the only thing that mattered. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, so I'm very aware and have always been aware of a way in which societies that seem to be pretty peaceful and tolerant can go very badly wrong when you mm. don't defend what's best about women when you don't fight for for the right kinds of progress and so you know obviously at an age in which we faced right-wing populism as a serious threat to our democratic institutions in in, in the united states in india and in turkey and venezuela and hungary and so many countries around the world that is something that's particularly on my mind and you know one thing i i want to say is that you know i, I made my name in many ways by warning the foremost of political science had caught on to this, about the danger to democracy from populism. I, you know, I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I worried about the crisis of democracy. <laughs> Before school. School, yeah. And so you know, some people might say, well, have you somehow changed science or have you changed your opinion? But when you go back to that book, People versus Democracy, I already have pages uh, worrying about some of the ways in which the left is allowing the right to claim the value of free speech, for example. I already have many of the same concerns that are at the heart of this book. And today, I, of course, remain very concerned about the threat to our democratic institutions by those same politicians. I remain very concerned, for example, that Donald Trump, uh, according to the latest polls, is running head-to-head, even ahead in certain polls, compared to Joe Biden in the presidential uh, election next year. And so for me, the defense of a vision of our democratic institutions that is cautiously optimistic, but uh, is aware of our injustices, but also capable of defending other things that make our society so much more inclusive and so much more just today than they were 200 or 100 or 50 years ago, is a big part of a project of how to avoid those political catastrophes. On the ideological level, you might think that what I'm calling the identity trap and far-right populism, complete opposites. But I think in practical, political, and in some ways electoral terms, one is the yin to the other's yang. It's in part Trump's election in the United States in 2016, which made it so hard and so toxic to criticize some of those ideas because you were immediately accused of somehow running interference for Trump. But I think it is in part the deep influence that these ideas now have on many institutions in the United States and beyond, which leaves an opening to people like Trump to come back into power. Yasha Monk, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this spirited conversation. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Yasha Monk on Twitter at Yasha underscore Monk. His book, The Identity Trap, is in bookstores now. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yaffa. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Hold up. 